Revelation chapter 2. Again, we're studying through verse by verse the book of Revelation. And right now we're looking at the seven churches that God had a message for. And those same messages apply to us and to each one of us individually as a church and individually. And so we want to have an open heart to not just say, oh, I studied this passage and I understand what it means. We want to be asking ourselves every single line, God, what are you saying to me? Lord, how does this speak into my life? Lord, how must I repent? How must, how must I change? And so it says to the church of Thyatira. Now, Thyatira is about 40 miles southeast of Pergamum. And uh, it's in the country of Turkey today. And uh, it's the smallest city of what of the seven churches we're going to be talking about, the seven locations. It's the smallest. Uh, Pliny, the historian, said it was a very insignificant place. Uh, it was a rural community. They grew crops there. And the unique thing they did is they produced dye from the plants there. And... Uh, we see in the ancient map of where it dwelt amongst the, what we call Asia Minor today. They called Asia at that time. And then we see again in the Mel route, we went from Ephesus to Smyrna, up to Pergama, and then 40 miles southeast down to Thyatira. And then about another 40 miles, we're going to hit Sardis. So in between Pergamus, which is Bergama today, and Sardis, which is Sart today, lies the ancient city, almost in the middle, Thyatira. And between the two was a major road. So although it was a rather insignificant place, um, it had so much traffic that it became a wealthy city. Today it's known as Akazar. Thyatira, interesting enough, means odor of affliction. Akazar, the Turkish word, means white fortress. And so the real claim to fame of Thyra, Tyra, just a flat area. It didn't have a hill coming up or a mountain like we saw last week with uh, Pergamus where it had the Acropolis and all the temples built upon the mountain. It was all a flat land. But its claim to fame was this flower called the matter flower. And from the roots of this plant, they were able to take a reddish, red-orange color dye. And from that dye, they were able to make these brilliant colors of red and a red-orange-ish, but the real claim to fame was purple. And all the people that were wealthy and of royalty would want to get from Thyatira. It's where they would want to get their dye from in order to uh, have their clothes dyed with the dye that came from Thyatira. And uh, we know in the book of Acts when a lady was actually not in Thyatira, but yet Paul ministered and reached her, named by the name of Lydia. In Acts 16, it tells us this. There was a certain woman named Lydia. She heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. And the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If I have judged me to be a faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she persuaded us. So the first convert from Thyatira wasn't actually in Thyatira when she was converted. 
but she was a wealthy businesswoman, and she was very persuasive and had Paul and them stay with her for a, a season. And no doubt she became disciple and at some point probably did go back to Thyatira and was uh, no doubt part of the, the ministering uh, to the saints there as well. There's not a lot of ruins to look at today in Thyatira. We simply have uh, a colonnade that's uh, left, and uh, there you can see um, some of the, the columns uh, that are left that were once a, a portico over the colonnade, and then you can see the arches that were once upon those columns that were over the colonnade, and that's about it. There is an ancient wall that stands, but it's from the 5th century, about 400 years after the writing of this letter from Apostle John. There's also a stone with some inscription on it. And the, the unique thing that came from Thyatira was their unions, their guilds. You know, today we have the Teamsters Union and so forth. Well, going back in history, these are the guys that sort of invented that. The various working class people because they began to get wealthy, because of the money that was coming through the travelers, they began to break into guilds. And it wasn't just simply the Masons, it was a religious aspect to the Masons. And so you not only bought into it as a society or a sorority, but you also had to worship God as they told you you had to worship God. And often would be one of the Greek gods as their uh, logo, if you would. And then on top of that, they would have, uh, as their society, their guild of carpenters or uh, dye sellers or, uh, you know, whatever it might be, masons, they also had parties in which the prostitutes would come in. And they, you had to be a part of each aspect of the worship and of the society life to be a part of the union to feel as a brotherhood with the other people. And of course, you can imagine the consternation this brought for Christians who were to worship only one and true God and were not to take part in sexual immorality as the others did. Thyatira really had no temple. Uh, we, they also, there's some coins that were discovered there representing the die and also representing the guilds. But uh, although they had no temple there, they did sort of lift up Apollo, who is the son of Zeus in Greek mythology as the god of the city, but uh, really not a whole lot left to, to inscribe that. And so the Lord here is writing to the smallest insignificant location, really, but yet the longest, most powerful letter. To the church of Thyatira, these things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass, the Son of God, the Son of something, as we study through the Bible, is saying it is like that by nature. For example, in Isaiah 57.3, when the children of Israel were acted wickedly and, and, and looking at witchcraft, he called them sons of sorcerers. Because by nature, that's what they were acting like. Or remember when James and John, when they, were, they went to a Samaritan city and said, hey, Jesus is coming through here. Would you like to have him come and speak to you? about the kingdom of God, the Samaritan city said, we don't want that guy coming through here. And when James and John got back to Jesus, they said, do you want us to call fire to heaven and destroy that place? And Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you're of, but he called them sons of thunder. These guys are at a fiery, zealous spirit for the Lord. Sons of thunder. So when we're looking at the titles of Jesus, we have son of man and we have son of God. 
Son of man, what's that mean? When God came in human flesh, Jesus came in human flesh, he lived amongst us as a man, 100%. Remember Satan said, turn that rock into bread. A man can't do that. If he did that, that would have disqualified himself for being 100% man. In no way did he have an advantage over you and I. We can't say, well, of course Jesus obeyed. He was God. Of course Jesus loved people. He was God. Well, of course Jesus, he, he had no advantage over you and I. None. So he could be the faithful high priest who can sympathize with us, our weakness, but also be our intercessor. This is why it says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we have one intercessor between God and man, who? The man, Christ Jesus. It emphasizes the man because he knows what it's like to live in human flesh upon this planet. He knows how difficult it is, and he's there to have sympathy and empathy upon us, we learn in Hebrews 4. But when he's describing himself to this church in Thyatira, he does not mention he's the son of man. He says, I am the son of God. In other words, his nature is that of deity. I'm not coming as the humble servant who came and took the sins of all mankind upon myself to die for you. And it was meek and lowly, a nobody from Nazareth, rejected by men. I am coming now in this second coming as the Son of God and power and great authority. I am coming as deity to you and you will, next time you'll see me, will be looking into the face of God Almighty and you will see the fiery eyes of me looking right through. Not just upon the outward man and the works that you do, but I'm piercing right through into the mind, into the heart, to look at the motives, to look at the, uh, what's going on and the intentions of your heart. And I'm going to bring all those secret things to light. The light coming from my eyes is going to come and expose you for who you really are. And then it says he comes also with a fine brass or the brass as if it just came out of a fire. Brass is the strongest metal. As you study the Old Testament, it's the metal of judgment. But since it's coming out of the fire, it's also representing purity. So it's the feet. He's moving towards you. He's coming at you. He's traveling, coming with a strong, pure, powerful, fiery judgment. And he's going to judge you, not just your works, but your mind and your heart. He's going to be coming in a powerful way. And I know your works, your love, your service, your faith, your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Now, as we go on and look at this church, we call the church of Thyatira the immoral church. This was a wicked church. Satan had gained control of this church. But still the Lord starts out by saying, yes, I know about your works. You have some love, you have service, you have faith, you have patience, and it's growing. You have more works now than you did when you started. You know, we got to understand something when we look at the world around us. And that is, first of all, that every one of us is made in the image of God. Every one of us has been stamped innately from birth with the knowledge there's a son of God, with the knowledge that things are eternal. We have within us a conscience of 
what God is pure and right to God and what is impure and wrong to God. You see the little child and he's, I just don't feel good, mom. Well, what's wrong? Oh, you don't have a fever. What's wrong? I just, my stomach hurts and I can't eat. And, and, and then you begin to discover they lied or they broke something and they hid it and they didn't want to tell. And, and their conscience is, is weighing upon them and it's making them feel sick and they can't eat and, and they, they want to go to sleep. And, and then when you finally reveal their sin and you help them deal with this, nobody told them. They've been made in the image of God and their conscience bore witness against them that they had violated the very nature of God and they felt it, they sensed it. But as we grow, we begin to sear that conscience. That which once used to prick our heart, the prick is still there, but we no longer feel it. So every single human being has a sense of who God is and how we are to live on this planet in honesty, in truth, in holiness, in reverence. But yet, we all sin, every one of us. But what happens, you see, is Satan knows this. He can't just show up and say, hey, I'm Satan, the rebellious angel. Let's party. Everybody bow down and worship me. And uh, let's all be Satanist. There's a very small percentage of people that are, are that freaked out, that would do that. Although there is a small percentage there. But, but what does Satan do? The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians that he comes as an angel of light, of angel of righteousness, an angel of goodness. So he says, yes, you think whatever religion you're a part of, you need to be good and righteous and whatever. And so if you look at all the religions of the world, Satan realizes that he has to be mostly truth in order to get his lies in. And so if you look at the Muslim religion or the Hindu religion or whatever it is, the Mormon religion or the Hare Krishnas or whatever, all the religions of the world, for the most part, they're, they're for telling the truth. <laughs> they're for being honest, for not stealing. They're for the family. They're against adultery. They're against fornication. Uh, they're for being honorable and noble and brave. 85% of all the religions do agree on those things. But that second 15%, Satan now says, I know some people will follow this road. Some people will, will, will run after, if I create this Buddhist religion, people will run after that. And so I, I, I can't go against the very nature of what they've been made. I've got to sort of seduce them with this, this era of righteousness, of light. But then I can take them off the road, off to this path. I know not everybody would, would go down the Buddhist path, but I got this Hindu path. And so I can get them following me through this idea of, of goodness. And it'll, it would set right with their personality and their mind frame. And I could get them to go down that Hindu path or get them to go down that Mormon path or that Jehovah Witness path. And so you, you have in all of these groups things that are good. You can find somebody who says, I was a full drug addict until I got involved in Mormonism, and now I'm sober. You can go to the Red Cross, and you'll find atheists there. And they're nice people, and they're being helpful, even though they don't believe in God at all. Because they've been made in the image of God. 
And they have a sense that I need to help my fellow man, even though they're an atheist. And so he comes to this church and he says, yes, you have some good works going. But the very next thing he says is, nevertheless. <laughs> that word nevertheless in verse 20 means, it's a very strong word. It means it doesn't even matter about all the good works you're doing. It says nothing compared to the immoral practices and the idolatrous practice you're, you're doing. This is an incredible point here because, see, this is the spirit of this age. They say this. I'm doing all of these good things, so therefore it doesn't, God's not going to really calculate out my sin because I've been such a girl, great Girl Scout leader over the last 20 years. The fact that I've got this immoral life going on, God's going to say, Oh, but you helped so many more people than you're, you know, sinning against me. Ah, I can take it. No big deal. And that's the thought of man. I was involved in the Red Cross for 20 years, and I went to four different continents helping victims of tragedies. So it doesn't really matter that I've sinned against God. In all the religions of the world, they get along and say, yes, we accept each other because Satan doesn't care which false road you take. But we come back and say, no. You, you can't try to buy God with good works. God, you have to have a life of obedience and the good works are a plus. But they can never take the place of a holy, obedient life before the Lord. So yes, I know. So he could have just came and said, you guys are immoral and I'm going to judge you. And they would have said, but, 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 but look at our good works. Look at our society. Look at how great, how much, how much we're helping people. So he comes in and says, yeah, I know about that. But it doesn't matter because you guys are living a sinful life. You're going to go to hell. So great, the Mormons helped this guy get sober, but now he's soberly going to hell. It's great, you've got this system going that helps the street people. You're feeding people, but they're still going to hell. It's interesting if you look at church history. You see where the church grows and becomes professional and becomes powerless and, and it becomes a social organization. And from that, a group will break off and start a new movement. And in that movement, they're, they're fiery. They're back to the Bible. Man, I believe the word. I believe every line and period and comma of it. And I stand on it. It's the truth. And it begins to, people begin to get saved. And then they begin to get discipled because they believe the Bible is the word of God. And then after that, they start sending out missionaries and there's evangelism going on and, and this movement begins to grow and thousands and, and thousands of people come to the Lord and hundreds and then thousands of churches around the world get going. But then in time, the same phenomena begins to happen in that they say, well, we've got to be professional. The people now that we're attracting are professional people and they want to see a professional clergy. 
So we got to get our colleges and we got to get our seminaries going. And, and then they, after a while, demand that anyone who's one of our pastors has to go through the college and has to at least have his master's degree from our seminary. But what happens always is the colleges become liberal and the seminary is even more liberal. And the professors in the seminaries are simply pastors who were horrible pastors who couldn't make it. So they had to go to the college to get a job because they couldn't cut it in the ministry. That's who most of the people are who are in the seminaries today. They were horrible pastors. But yet they're going to teach pastors how to be pastors. And they get up there in their little ivory towers and they start wanting to entertain themselves with all of this craziness until they have diluted the word of God where it's no longer the word of God. You can't trust that. Jesus really didn't say that. The third century church made that up. The fourth century church added that in. And uh, until they no longer have confidence themselves in the word of God and they bleed that over into the pastors that you can't be confident. And so the pastors go out now after seven years of education and they try to say, thus saith the Lord, but they don't really believe it, and the power is not there, and the people don't believe it, and discipleship begins to grow to a halt. And now people having marriage problems, I'd like you to say, here's what the Lord says, but I'm not sure if the Lord said it. Why don't you go see a psychologist? Well, I know you're having a problem with your kids. I'd like to just tell you, here's what the Bible says on raising kids, but it's probably not correct, so you better just go see a counselor. And so the church that once was a million people is now shrinking down to 100,000 people. And so you have all of these churches that seat 1,000 people with 10 people there. And they're all wondering, why are we even here? All the pastor says every week is the same thing. Well, you know, as long as you're sincere, it doesn't matter what you believe. Whether you're a Hindu or a Buddhist, as long as you're sincere, everybody's going to be right with God because that's the kind of God he is. You know, just like Santa Claus, nobody really gets a coal in their stocking. Everybody's going to get a present. God's going to accept everybody. It doesn't matter what you believe. And so be a good person. Well, I don't need you to tell me that. Why even go to church anymore? So now the church has to redefine. Why do we exist? And every time they redefine themselves as a social organization. Well, the reason we exist is, guys, let's all make a bunch of soup and let's go down on Fifth and Broadway and feed the street people. Let's, let's get a thousand blankets. Let's make our goal this year a thousand blankets and send it to people of of tragic circumstances. We'll send it to the Red Cross. They can send it. And so after a while, they're no longer preaching the word, discipling, evangelizing, sending out missionaries. This thing reduces to a social organization, and it no longer has anything to do with the gospel whatsoever. And from that, somebody will break off. (laughs) Say the Bible is the word of God. I believe it. There's only one way to eternal life, and that's through Jesus Christ. Period. And they challenge him saying, but who are you to say your religion's right? How do you know the pygmies in Africa don't have a superior culture to us? And for us to tell them they have to become Christians is not tampering with the ecological balance of New Guinea. Jesus said... (laughs) I alone am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's the truth. And it's only the truth that can set you free. If you have a a pilot, that pilot has to set his compass exact to get to Hawaii. 
And if at any point in time he deviates even a fraction of an inch from his compass, he has to continue to look at it, he will end up thousands of miles shipwrecked out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean somewhere. To hit that tiny little island out in the middle of that vast ocean, he has to stay on course exactly. And that's what Jesus said. Narrow is the road that leads to life, and few are them that will stay on that road. But broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many are those who will go on that course. It's all good. I'm okay. You're okay. Live and let live. Let's all tolerate. Just be happy. Don't worry. It's all okay. Jesus said the opposite. Men are dying and going to hell, and it's not okay. Go, therefore, into all the world and preach the gospel. And so we come back. And the church here, yeah, they got these works. They got, these, they got this social organization going, and, and their, their relief organization is growing, and they seem to be helping more and more people. Yeah, but nevertheless, he says, it, 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 it doesn't matter. All the good works a man can do in his life cannot make up for one sin. He has to receive Christ as his Lord and live an obedient life to the Lord. I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. First of all, you've allowed this woman to come in and take over the church. The pastor stepped aside, this charismatic individual. You know, I've heard people say, I I don't see how somebody could listen to Jim Jones. That guy was a kook, saying all kinds of crazy things. And and then he tells everybody to go off to Guyana, to go move down in South America there, out in the middle of the jungle, and, and... sell everything they have and go down there and start their own society while he takes all their money. And, and then finally, when things are going bad, he has them all, they all know they're drinking this poison, this lemonade, and they all die by the thousands. If I was there, I never would have followed him. You know what? You're underestimating the power of these charismatic individuals. If you know the word and you are standing on the word and you are living in the word, then you will be able to stand. But if you casually know the Bible and you're casually following the Lord, I, don't, I guarantee it you'll listen to them and follow them. Because they're powerful people, often demonically powerful. You know, you have the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. Remember him? Oh, you have so many problems. Give me everything you have, and you will have no more problems. And come down in Oregon and live with me there. And so people gave away. I mean, doctors, lawyers, extremely educated people gave away millions, gave everything to him. And they all went and lived in this little hut and farmed, working their butts off every day to try to get some food as they lived in these commune situations. Tens of thousands of people did it till the government pe- caught up with him. Then he went to India, and they all followed him to India. When he died, he had 29 Rolls Royces, they discovered. Oh, the things of the world don't bother me as it did you. Um, <laughs> I don't know how he figured it out. But you'd be amazed how people will listen to this. In Matthew 24, 11, 
Jesus said, many false prophets will rise up and deceive, what? Many. That's why we have to understand that in these last days, it's going to be a powerful, demonic time that you have to know the truth to stand on it. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, it says this. Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day will not come unless the what? Falling away comes first. That term, falling away, is the Greek word apostasia, which means those who who become apostate and leave. The Bible makes it clear that one of the things we're going to see is people by the thousands leaving the church and going off and listening to these false teachers. In 1 Timothy 4.1, Now the Spirit expressly, emphatically states that in the last times, what? Some will depart from the faith, giving heed to these deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Like Demas, it says in 2 Timothy 4.10, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed. In Hebrews 3, verse 12, it says, Beware, brethren, there's some of you that need to beware right now, lest there be any of you an evil heart of unbelief in what? Departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, why it's called day, lest... Any of you be hardened to the deceitfulness of sin, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast till when? To the end. Notice, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. And so you have these incredible charismatic individuals who come in and twist the scriptures and things that just seem to be common knowledge amongst us as Christians, they begin to get us to doubt, and they begin to sway people into believing things that they never normally would have believed. Notice there he makes it clear, my servants. This prophetess Jezebel, she swayed my servants. These people were believers, but they fell away. They departed from the faith. They loved this present world and departed. They departed from the living God because of the hardness of heart that came through a sinful life. And this lady Jezebel was able to take them into sexual immorality. She was able to get them to be convinced that it was okay to live an immoral lifestyle. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says, Finally then, brethren... We urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought or must walk and please God. For you know what commandments we gave through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Same root word of holiness. That you should abstain, what? Abstain from sexual immorality. Whether it's the TV, the computer, in the movie theater, in a magazine, in actual physical activity, you're to get away from it completely, entirely. It's not even to be named among you. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles. They 
get a store sexually. They just run and do whatever their body wants them to do. They don't have restraint or they don't have the sense that this is sin and I can't be a part of it, even though my flesh is screaming to go for it. The, the, the heathen of the world, they just do what feels good, do it. And in the passion of those, the Gentiles who do not know God. Now listen to verse 6 there of 1 Thessalonians 4. That no one should take an advantage of and defraud who? His brother in this matter. Because the Lord's of avenger of all set, who have forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us in uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has given us of his Holy Spirit. So he makes it abundantly clear that there are going to be some that try to sway the brethren to live an unclean life. God doesn't really care. It's not that big of a deal. It's just a little sex. It's a little pornography. It's a little nudity. It's just a little one-night fleeing. What happens in Las Vegas stays in Las Vegas. You know, go for it. Lighten up. I've had people look at me in the face and say, you're telling me that God's going to send me to hell for sleeping with my girlfriend. And I said, yes. I can't believe you're saying that. Read it. 1 Corinthians 6. Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators or adulterers or homosexuals or sodomites or extortioners, and he goes on, will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Because the spirit of this age makes light of sex. It's no big deal. And so they're deceived, thinking God wouldn't judge it because sex and committing immorality is such a non-issue. Why would God send somebody to eternal hell for such a non-issue? Because they've minimized sex to that degree. And it's not a non-issue. The sexually immoral are going to go to hell, and it says it all the way up to Revelation Chapter 20, he repeats it there again when he gives a list of who's going to go to hell. It's the immoral people is on that list. And so again, yes, it's a serious issue. Don't let anybody defraud you. But yet in the church, in 1 Corinthians 5, one guy married his father's wife. In 1 Corinthians 6, the the Corinthians were going into prostitutes. And he said, how can this be? Because the two of you become one flesh. When you have sexual intercourse with a woman, you're to be her wife for eternity. For until the day, until you leave this earth, as long as you're on earth, you're husband and wife. So how can you go into one girl and go into another when the two become one flesh? He says, don't you know you've been bought with a price, you're no longer your own, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and you're to glorify God in your body and in your spirit. You see, a lot of these teachers say, as long as spiritually you're in love with God, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. God doesn't care what you do with your feet or your hands or your mouth or your eyes or your brain or whatever other part of your body you want to describe. He doesn't care. As long as you love him, he doesn't care what you do with your physical body. Guys, that's a lie. Christ bought you with his own precious blood and he bought you in every aspect, spirit, soul, and body. And what you do with your body absolutely affects your spirit and your soul. And God is not going to just judge your spirit. He's going to judge your body and he's going to judge your soul 
and everything you've done with every aspect of your life. In Hebrews 13.4, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, people who, have, who are single and have sex, or adulterers, people who are married and have sex, other with somebody, their spouse, God will what? Judge. There's going to be a condemnation from God when there is defilement of that bed and marriage, and not treating marriage as that honorable thing that's to be pure. And then also it leads right into idolatry. It tells us that in Ephesians 4, that sexual immorality is idolatry. Where people have, they just get to the place that, that sex becomes consuming. When you start to live an immoral life, it, it's like alcohol or drugs. It begins to consume you. Because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, all other sins are outside the body. But when you sin morally, you sin against yourself. And one of the ways is it begins to consume you until you eat, drink, and sleep sex. It becomes the most important thing. And once you have sex, five minutes later, you're eating, drinking, and sleeping, thinking, when am I going to have sex next? Just like the alcoholic, just like the drug addict. And so sex becomes your God. It becomes your master passion. Interesting, the very last verse of 1 John says this, Little children, beware of idols. Interesting. The last thing John says, Little children, Beware of idols. Anything can become your master passion and become the reason you live and, and breathe and what you do. You could, it could be anything. It could be a relationship that you have. It's a good thing you love your wife, but she's become your God. It's a good thing you love your kids, but they're your master passion and you're going to sacrifice and do everything and they are first. Maybe it's a friendship with somebody else. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's your work. Maybe it's your money. Maybe it's your fishing boat or your surfboard. Or... It has to be Christ and Him only is your master passion. Any other thing is idolatry. And we're to be careful to not get ourselves in to such idolatry. This woman Jezebel, maybe her name actually was Jezebel. I don't think so. I think it's pointing back to the Old Testament. Like last week in Pergamos, it said the doctrine of Balaam pointing us back to Numbers 22 through 25. Well, this is pointing us back to 1 Kings. There was a king and queen by the name of Ahab and Jezebel, but she ran things. She overpowered her husband. We have one scene where her husband's pouting. He said, why are you pouting? Well, there's this guy and he has a field next to my field out in our country house and and I, I like his vineyard, and I want more land, and he won't give it to me. And I gave him a really good price for it, and she goes, I'll take care of it. She called, she got a party together, and she got the, paid these men in the middle of the party to start screaming, Naboth blasphemed, Naboth blasphemed. And they picked him up, took him outside, stoned him to death, and she goes, okay, now you can have his property. That's the kind of woman she was. A brutal woman, but what she also did was ended true Jewish worship, and she raised up her own religion to Baal. And she began to kill the false prophets. Or she began to kill all the true prophets. You guys remember probably the most powerful scene there when Elijah faces off with Ahab and Jezebel. 
and goes to Mount Carmel and says, let's decide today who's God and who isn't, whoever can call fire to heaven. That's the true God. Remember there, those bell worshipers, 450 of them crying out all day, nothing happened. King Ahab observing the whole thing. And finally, Elijah, he pours water all over it, and God comes down and licks up even the dirt underneath it. And Ahab, ooh, he was pretty convinced. He gets on his chariot, goes home, heads back over to Jezreel. Later, Elijah, by the power of the Spirit, starts running ahead and gets there before Ahab and his chariot and sitting outside, you know, the wall. And he listens to see what this Jezebel will say about it. Whoa, that's so powerful. We have been worshiping a false religion. Yahweh is God, but that's not what she heard. Jezebel said, he did what to my prophets? He killed them? Oh, that's it. I am going to kill that Elijah. No repentance at all. And Elijah got so depressed, so discouraged. He, he just gave up. He just went out and laid down out in the woods somewhere wanting to die. And God began to minister to him. And that's a, a whole nother story. But it says here in verse 21 that I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Boy, how precious God is. He gave her time. Think about this. This woman was a false prophetess. She had corrupted the church. She had stumbled believers, some of them permanently. She was totally being used by Satan to overthrow the true church in Thyatira. And God says, I want her to repent. It wasn't, I can't wait to damn her to hell. No, it's, I'm giving her time. Even though she's continuing on in false prophecies and, and she's leading people into sexual immorality, it says in Nahab, it says, I am God, our God is slow to anger. In Nahum, it says, our God is slow to anger in Nahum 1.3. He's an incredible God who's patient. The Bible says that God does not wish for the wicked to be destroyed. Even though this woman was incredibly wicked, even though she was incredibly evil, he was waiting and waiting and longing and desiring Jezebel. Repent. I don't want to send you to hell. I want you to be forgiven. I want you to go to heaven. But yet, even though he gave her time, she did not repent. She would not turn. And in verse 22... Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into the great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. So now he comes and says, the time's up. For some, they have a week. Sometimes they have a month. Sometimes they have a year. Sometimes they have a lifetime to repent. But God knows. And we've got to understand something, guys. We don't choose to be saved. God chooses us to be saved. Jesus says in John 6, nobody comes unto me unless the Father first draws them. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 6, it says in that day, when God has drawn you, today is the day of salvation. Whether that call will ever come again in your lifetime, who knows? Maybe it'll come every single day the rest of your life, or maybe it'll never come again. But when you hear the Lord knocking at the door of your heart, when you sense 
a repentance for your sins. Guys, that's a gift of God. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. And jump on that opportunity. God's been gracious to give you a space of time to repent, but that may be the last opportunity you have. And hers was over, and now there was going to be this sickness, this plague upon her, and people were going to watch her waste away and die. And others who committed adultery, their judgment wasn't coming yet. But what's going to happen to them is they're going to keep being disobedient to God until the rapture of the church comes, and they're going to be left behind. Even though they profess to be followers of Christ, they're going to be left behind. And they're going to go through that tribulation period. How radical. We do see throughout the scriptures that judgment must first come to the house of God, it says in 1 Peter 4. And if the righteous are scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinners appear? And there's some people that maybe once obeyed God, but now like Demas, they love the present world and they've forsaken him. They've walked away. In 1 Corinthians 11, there were some making a mockery of communion and it says some are weak and sick and some many sleep. They, they died because of it. In Hebrews 10.26, it says, for if we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and firing indignation which will devour the adversary. So these people who knew the truth but chose to live a life of immorality and idolatry and sin, they're going to be left behind. Remember Saul, the king Saul? There as he offered the sacrifice that only the priests were to do, Samuel showed up and said, what did you do? He said, I have to offer the sacrifice because you didn't show up when you said you were. And he said, because you have done this, you've not kept the commandments of the Lord, because you have acted foolishly in disobeying him, he says, God would have established your kingdom forever, but now he's going to take it from you. And the Lord's going to, they're going to say, but Lord, why was I not raptured? I would have raptured you away with the church. But you've turned from me. You've not followed my commandments. You've not obeyed me. And now you're left behind. I gave you a space to repent. I, my spirit showed you to repent. You went to church and heard me teach on Thyatira there, and you didn't repent. I gave you that opportunity, and now you're left behind. And in others, in verse 23, he says, I will kill her children with death. So there are some that won't make it to the tribulation, that God's going to kill them as well because he's got to purge the church of that old leaven. And the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. So we're going to give them a little taste of the day of judgment. You know, I, I so wish God could take us all in this time machine and take us to the back of the courtroom, you know, just to sort of almost be invisible in the back of the courtroom and watch Christ judging others before us. And the Lord says, I know your works. I know your labor, your service, your love. You're a good mom. You're a good dad. Yeah, I know you spent 20 years in the Red Cross. Nevertheless, I have this against you. And he starts naming them off. One, two, three. And you realize, oh man. Be gone now, you doers of iniquity and everlasting damnation. Four out of the five things that that last guy got damned to hell for, I'm doing 
and then to take us back into present time. Many will come in that day saying, Lord, Lord, didn't I prophesy? Didn't I work miracles? Didn't I cast out demons? Be gone, you what? Doers of iniquity. You people of lawlessness, you did not do my will. All the prophecies will not make up for a life of obedience. All the good works you've done for Christ or for man or for whoever will not make up for a life of obedience, holy, obedient unto the Lord. And so they'll know that I'm not just looking at their works and their services and their love, but I'm looking at their minds. I'm looking at their hearts. I'm looking at your fantasy life. I'm looking at the motive for why you're doing what you're doing. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. I'm also looking at your works. So because you spent 20 years in service to man, I won't send you to the hottest place in hell, the second to the hottest place in hell. But nevertheless, you're damned without the knowledge of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians Corinthians chapter 3, there in verse 16 and 17, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. If you defile the temple of God, God will destroy him. For God, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God takes it serious. When he receives you as his child and his Holy Spirit enters your life and then to turn and to follow the teachings of Jezebel. And in verse 24, Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, but I put on you no other burden, but what? Verse 25, hold fast what you have till I come. I know there are some of you who, when the pastor began to let this woman have a voice and they've been listening to her prophecies and they begin to say, well, you know, go ahead and join that guild and, you know, just, just go through that Zeus worship and just fall asleep like you do with, on me on Sunday. And, you know, when the prostitutes come in after the, the, after the guild meeting, you know, just try not to dabble too much. And, and you know, God will understand because you've got to be a you got to get a job. you got to be a mason. you got to work. So do what you got to do, and, and, and God, God's not going to judge it. And here are people going, that's nonsense. That's sinful. That's not what it says in 1 Thessalonians. Paul said the opposite of that. That's not what Christ taught. That woman's a heretic, and I'm not going to go to church there anymore. I'm backing off. I'm getting out of there. And there he sees those listening to her, getting the good jobs and getting, doing well financially. They're still struggling, getting by financially. They're having a hardship. And now they've got the attack of Satan on the outside with all of their idolatry. And now they have the attack of Satan on the inside where they're supposed to be able to go get, get fed the word and, and strengthen in the Lord. Now it's a place where it's just as satanic as on the outside with these prophecies of Jezebel. We have many people that have come to our churches of recent times from the Episcopal Church. They've endured it through the years as they've seen hints and rumors of that particular priest over there is a homosexual, but you know, it's not made it public or known, and you know, who are we to judge? And 
I, I was raised Episcopal, and they loved the Episcopal Church, and they put up with it and put up with it. But this last year, when finally one of the priests who had left his wife and his kids and lived with this man for many years, finally they said, hey, let's make him a bishop. I think it was over Maine or somewhere back east. And boy, it got in your face. And the Episcopal Church stance was, homosexuality is not only not a sin, it's a very wonderful lifestyle. And if you don't accept it, you're evil. And there were very many Episcopals that said, that's it. Many Episcopal priests said, I'm out of here. And many people of Episcopal Church said, I'm done. And the Lord would say to you, who won't put up with these doctrines of immorality, who won't put up with these teachings of idolatry, of sinfulness, of wickedness, and saying, Jesus Christ is for homosexuality. How ridiculous. To you, I put no other burden. Just keep fighting the fight. In 1 Timothy 1.18, he says, wage the good warfare. In 1 Timothy 6.12, he says, fight the good fight. In 2 Timothy 4.7, I have fought the good fight. Guys, it's a good fight. It's worth it. <laughs> It's worth it to stay on that narrow road. It's worth it to keep the compass right on target. Because guys, very soon, in a twinkling, in a moment, we're going to be in heaven. And the things of this earth are going to be a passing shadow in the back of our mind. And we are going to be in heaven, guys. Heaven! We're going to be with Jesus face to face. Can you imagine that? Hang in there. Keep the faith. All hell's breaking loose, and it's going to continue. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy that the imposters and deceivers are going to grow worse and worse. But you persevere. You continue on in the true doctrine and the right manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, and love. Don't let these guys get you down. The word of God will equip you to make it through these last days. And then in verse 26, he who overcomes and keeps my works until when? The end. Your last breath or till the rapture of the church. To him I will give power over the nations. He will, shall rule with, with a rod of iron. And they shall dash in pieces like potter's vessels, as I also receive from my Father. That's Psalms 2, verse 8 and 9 that Jesus quotes. It's a promise from the Father to the Son. And he says, now as a Son, I'm giving that promise to you. As I am going to come and be the King and the Priest and rule this world, so you are going to be a kingdom of priests and kings unto me to rule the world. You know, you can't outgive God. You lose your life in this world and what? You gain it in the life to come. Let's say you live 100 years on this planet every day denying yourself, taking up that cross and following Jesus. Guess what, guys? You have all of eternity. But interesting enough, when the rapture of the church comes, there's going to be a seven-year marriage feast. For seven years, we're going to eat. Sound good? I can do it, man. I can go for it. And in your brand new bodies, after you pig out for seven years, you still have a six-pack. And then we jump on our horses and we come flying through space down to this earth with Jesus. 
The final battle of Armageddon takes place. The Lord heals the earth, and it begins to repopulate itself from those who didn't take the mark of the beast and those who received the Lord in that tribulation period. And it begins to repopulate the earth, and we begin to rule and reign upon the earth with Christ for a thousand years. I mean, imagine that. A hundred years of skiing the Alps. You can't get a broken leg. <laughs> Fall down, no big deal. You're in your new body. Another hundred years scuba diving over in Hawaii without even scuba gear. And you got 800 years left. Whatever you give up, God's going to give back a hundredfold. Whatever you lose in this life, God never takes away unless he's going to give better. It's going to be worth it, guys. We're going to rule and reign with Christ in a righteous judgment upon this earth. In 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. And then in verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. Look at Revelation 22.16. He says, I, Jesus, and then he names He sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches, and I am the root and the offspring of David. And then it would repeat, I am the bright and morning star. So when he says, I give you the morning star, he's saying, I give you myself. I am your reward. Like in the Pergamos last week, he says, I will give you to eat of the hidden manna. We know in John 6, 41, that I am the bread that came down from heaven. Jesus is the hidden manna. We get to eat of the deep, hidden manna, the deep fellowship with Jesus for all of eternity. We're going to go to a place where there's no sun needed because the Lord is the light of that place. They asked John in 1 John 3, what will it be like when we go to heaven? He goes, I don't know, but I know when we see him, we will be just like him. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself, even as he is pure. And then in verse 29, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Can you hear it today? In 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. There's some of you that have the ability to hear today a little bit of a sound doctrine. There's some of you today with a little bit of a hunger for God's word. And I'm telling you, in the last days, the Spirit expressly says with the doctrines of demons that that's going to seem right to you and the truth is going to seem false. That things that are good are going to be evil and evil are going to be good. That the teachings of God's word are going to seem evil. God says homosexuality is an abomination. That's evil. (laughs) No, it's good. But it seems evil to you. And so now you're going to go off and try to find some church that says Christian something outside who says homosexuality is not a sin. You're going to go and try to find a place that says, I'm okay, you're okay, don't worry, be happy. It's all good. All road leads to God. Let's just all be sincere and not judge each other. And you're going to be running off. And I believe we're in that time now where people are just going off. They don't want to hear about hell, Satan, sin, judgment. They don't want to hear about anything. 
of that sort, all they want to do is have their ears tickled how to be more prosperous, how to be happy in an unhappy world, the four keys to overcoming stress, the five ways to make your unhappy boss happy, and basically pat you on the head saying, you are being a good person. Keep it up. You're a beautiful person. That's all you need to know. Now go and do whatever seems right to you is okay. That's what they're going to be looking for, and that's what man's looking for today. But I say to you, your heart could turn tomorrow. And if you are living in immorality, if Christ is not your master passion, if you are not seeking him first, his kingdom, his righteousness, that he might add unto you, it will soon be that you will be mocking his name, cursing his name, that you will listen to the false teachings that grieve the very heart of God and you will say in your mind, I am pleasing him by accepting these heretical teachings. Some will depart from the faith listening to that. The great apostasia is going to come. The sin will harden the heart and they will depart from the living God. Guys, are you living a holy life? God has piercing eyes. He's looking at what you do on the computer. He's looking at what you're doing on the TV and at work and on those business trips. He knows what you have in the trunk of your car. He knows what you have stashed in the drawer at your house. He knows the fantasies in your brain. He knows the real motives of your heart. Are they all pure in his sight? If they're not, you need to repent and do it quickly. Thank you, Lord, for giving us a space of time to do it. But you need to do it because that space of time may be over for some of you today. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. And we do know those piercing eyes are piercing us right this very moment. We hear the clanking of the metal of the bronze feet Fire steaming from them, looking at the red, beaten bronze walking amongst us. With a cry in your heart, begging, pleading, Jezebel, repent. I love you. I want you to be in heaven with me. Even though for a season you've been used by Satan himself to corrupt and deceive my church, I can still forgive you. And all her children, repent. If you've been listening to the doctrines of Jezebel, it's okay that I've been dabbing a little pornography here. It's okay I've been smoking a little weed there. It's okay that I've been watching a little nudity here. And it's okay that I've been talking it up at work with the boys and cursing a little bit and, and being risque there. It's okay that I've been, I had that little fling on that business trip. It's, you know, the way men are. Things like that happen. God understands. No big deal. God's here today because he brought you here. You almost didn't make it, and you know it. You kicked against it. You fought against it. It's amazing that you're sitting here right now, and you know it. And it's because God wanted to give you one more official time to hear. I'm talking to you. I've been talking to you in your heart. I talked to you last week on the radio. I talked to you through your wife. And now I'm up front in your face as if this whole sermon were written for you. 
but you say, I'm numb, I don't feel it. I'm callous, I don't care. I'm tired and weary, I just sort of surrendered. Don't grow weary in well-doing. Don't let Satan rip you off. Be a man, get back up. The righteous man falls seven times, but he gets up seven times. You need to get up today and say, yes, Lord. No more compromise, no more immorality, no more idolatry. You are first. You're first in my day. You're first in my week. You're first in my finances. You're first in my relationships. I'm the same person at work and at home and at church from this point forward. In my heart, in my mind, in my steps, in my hands, in my feet, with my mouth, with my brain. They're all one. They're all sanctified, holy, set apart only for your use. I give myself to you today. If that's your heart right now, any part of that, that's me. You say, that's me. That's what God's doing in me today. Lift your hand right now. Just lift it up if you would. That's me. I'm getting my life right with God today. I'm falling upon the rock today and repenting. Just keep your hand up in a minute. Christ hung on a cross six hours. Just for a few minutes here. Keep your hand up. That's me. Those who have your hands up right now, I just want you to stand up right now where you're at. Just stand up. Be bold. Be humble. I know it's, it's hard. You're you're amongst family and friends. You lifted your hand. Just stand right now. It's me. It's me. But I come today. I know God loves me. You're amongst family and friends here that care for you. He's bringing you to himself. Lord, thank you for these hearts that you've touched right now. Bold thing they've done here this morning. There's others, Lord, I know you're still tugging on their hearts and pride is keeping them. It's a horrible thing to say that I knew it all. I had the answer. The key was in my hand. It was pride that kept me from making that step. Is there any others? Just right now, it's me. I want to know that my sins are forgiven. I want to know that my name is written in the book of life. I want to know that my sins are taken away and the guilt of my sin is gone, that I am right with God for all of eternity. Jesus said, if you'll confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. Jesus says, if you'll humble yourself before me, I can lift you up. So I'm going to ask you one more thing, and that's to get out of your seat where you're at right now and come to the front right now. Don't care what anybody else thinks. This is you and the Lord. When you stand before God, you stand by yourself. No family, no friends. Just get out of your seat right now. Come forward right now. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Let's all stand up together. There may be others that need to make that same walk. As we stand up, if you need to come right now, this is your opportunity. And I know there's others right now that are saying, that's me. I didn't raise my hand. I didn't stand up, but I'm coming right now. I'm coming with the group right now. Just get out of your seat. I'm coming. I want to get my life right with God today. I want to leave here in a right relationship with the Lord today. Is there any others? God bless you, sir. Yes, ma'am. There's more. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. We're going to sing this song. This is it. This is the last opportunity you're going to have, maybe for a lifetime, but the last opportunity for right now. We're going to sing just a verse of this. Make your way. Don't let Satan rip you off. Don't let your pride rip you off. Make your way now. Lord, I come. Lord, we thank you for these people here that, wow, they're going to leave here with the weight of the world off their shoulders. 
they're going to leave here knowing that when one who is lost is found, that all of heaven rejoices. Lord, we thank you that you're so quick to forgive and so slow to anger. We thank you for the space of time that you've given us, how precious that space was. We've come. And these here today, Lord, they confess before all of us they're sinners. They confess before all of us they haven't been doing it right. They haven't been living right. They've allowed things to creep in, weeds to start choking out, and the cares of this life to weigh them down. And they've been snared to the point that they didn't think they would make it if the rapture were to come or they were to die. But now, Lord, hear the cry of their heart. Look at the humbleness, Lord. As they're falling upon the rock, being broken, put them back together, heal them, restore them. And right now, just cry out to God in your heart. Something like this. And let's all as a family, the whole church here, let's all pray together and make these here feel at home. Dear Heavenly Father, I know I'm a sinner, but I know you love me. And I know you sent your son to die for me as my substitute to take all my sin upon himself and then to raise again that I might be forgiven. Forgive me. Come and take the throne of my heart. Be my king. Be my Lord. Be my savior. From this day forward, my life is lived for you and you only. In Jesus' name. And bless all who have heard your word today in truth. And Lord, meet us again powerfully tonight. In your word once again. In Jesus' name, amen. Those who came forward, just a couple of minutes of your time to make sure you're grounded and know the next step. The rest of you, before you leave, find somebody you don't know and ask one prayer request for the rest of the week. And then pray for them throughout that week. God bless you all.